theyeshiva.net. This week's Parsha is Bahar, as everybody knows. And I'm going to explore with you one uh, aspect, or one Pasuk actually, of the Parsha that upon reflection contains very profound and powerful lessons and relevance to our lives even today, although those exact circumstances are not applicable any longer. Parshas Bahar is dedicated in a large degree to a poor man or a poor person. In other words, a lot of the laws of the Parsha were legislated to protect those who are poverty-stricken. And some of them are actually, when you study them, they're fabulous and marvelous in all of the details and the nuances of how the Torah legislates these halachas, these mitzvahs, for the sake of the poor. There is one noticeable pattern of regression in poverty. So, for example, the Torah talks about somebody who becomes uh, so poor that they're forced to sell their fields, their ancestral fields in Israel, even though they inherited them, they are forced to sell them. And then there is a person who, in the next stage, sells even a, uh, a home. And in the home itself, there are those homes that were more homes that were used for guarding the fields, homes that were in open places near the fields, and then there's somebody who becomes so poor they even sell their residential home. Not just a home that they used for work or for uh, taking care of their fields or farms, but even their own residential home, which is, of course, a greater level of, uh, of poverty, what we call today foreclosure. That's because today you never owned it, the bank owned it. But here, they owned it, but they had to sell it. And then there is the next level where they sell themselves as servants because they're so desperate. And therefore, you can't sell yourself for more than six years, but you can sell yourself for those six years. And that sum of money, which is a nice sum of money, can help the man pay his bills and support his family and uh, pay tuition in the schools and send them to camp and buy shoes and buy wine for Pesach. And some of the other expenses, like uh, blackberries and uh, similar uh, similar nash, blueberries. So the person actually sells themselves, not just their fields, not just their working homes, not just their homes, but actually themselves. And then there reaches a point, and this is the the zenith, the peak of poverty, where the person becomes so poor that the Jew sells himself to a non-Jew as a slave. In Eretz Yisrael, He sells himself to a non-Jew as a slave. In all the other instances, even when he sells himself, he sells himself to a Jew. So the culture is similar. But now he sells himself to a non-Jew and he now belongs to that person. Not for eternity. 
there's a limited amount of time, but for that amount of time, he's, so to speak, owned on some level, at least his work is owned by the other person. Well, he gets paid initially. I mean, a large sum of money. That's why he does it. He does. Well, we're talking about we're talking about here in Eretz Yisrael when it's under Jewish control. Yes, if it's somewhere else, and that's why if Yovel comes, the non-Jew has to send them out. It's, it's it's talking about a country that's under Eretz Yisrael when the laws of Yovel apply during the first base Hamikdash, and it was under Jewish control. So therefore, by Yoyv- now comes the Torah and says, even after he sold, halachically he can be redeemed at any point. In other words, if somebody comes to the non-Jew and says, here, take back your money and let him go free, so he's obligated to let him go free. Just as it's true in the other cases. It's true in the other cases when um, the person sells his field his house, he can redeem it. If he comes up with the money, he can redeem it. So this is true also in this case, that when he sells himself to a non-Jew, the trader says, after he sold, somebody can redeem him. As the words, the words are, echad me echav yigaleno. Even after he sells himself, one of his brothers shall redeem him. In a fair legal way, he comes to the non-Jew and he says, here's the money. And if he worked for him for one year already, or two years, or three years, that gets that gets diminished because let's say he bought him for for ten years till Yovel is ten years, right? For a thousand dollars, I'm just giving obviously more than a thousand dollars. Every year is a hundred dollars. He worked for him a hundred year. He worked for him one year. So he only has to pay him nine hundred dollars. And here we find something interesting. The Torah lists who should redeem him. So it says, after he sold, he can be redeemed. One of his brothers shall redeem him. Or his uncle. Or the son of his uncle, which means first cousin. Shall redeem him. Or any relative. Any relative. It could be a first cousin, one shul. It could be a second cousin. Any relative from his family should redeem him. I, finally, he If he himself gets the money, he can redeem himself. Maybe he wins a lottery, maybe he gets a whatever, maybe he gets something. Where does he come up with the money suddenly if he's working for that person? He comes up with the money. It's a trust, right? It happens. So he could come to his boss and say, here, take the money and let me go free. And the boss cannot hold him back. So obviously you're not dealing here with a form of slavery as became known in later centuries or was known then also, including even in the United States of America, where the person truly owned the slave completely. There was no room for redemption. But here we call it slavery, we call it an event, but it's more the term of a servant in the sense that even though you own the person and the services, it's not complete and absolute ownership. I mean, if he has the money, he could say goodbye and you can't hold him back. This is talking about a yeah. Jew who sells himself right. to a non-Jew. Right. Also a non-Jew. A Jew sells himself to a non-Jew. 
Ah, a woman was not allowed to sell herself, even if she was poor. A woman could not sell herself, according to Jewish law. There's only one instance of a woman being sold, a Jewish woman. It's very, very limited. It's called an Amma <laughs> Very good. <laughs> There's some singles here. Give them hope. She says marriage, every woman sells herself. But usually a woman cannot sell herself as a slave, even if she's poverty-stricken, there has to be another way. A man can, a woman cannot. There's only one exception, it's very interesting, where a father can do it, only under very interesting circumstances. And that is, if his daughter, is ver- if they have a very, very poor house, and he can't feed his daughter, and he can't give her anything, and he can't give her anything she needs, Literally, not even clothes and, and uh, living uh, shelter and never mind marriage, education, and so forth. So the halacha is that he's allowed to sell her to another family with the condition that she works for them and they feed her and take care of all her needs. But the moment she reaches, the, the moment she reaches 12, they can't hold her anymore. In other words, this is a little girl. A nine-year-old girl, a ten-year-old girl who has no living condition, she'll be in the streets. So he can do that. And what happens then is, um, uh, and it's only in the condition that there has to be also an option of marriage. In other words, if it works in the house, the one who took her can marry her, or one of his children could marry her. If not, he just has to let her go. I mean, uh, either if six years come up or she comes 12, um, uh, or of course, if she wants to redeem herself, um, but that—that's the only—that's uh, the only instance. It's called amayivriya. Now, there's a very obvious and blatant omission here from who are the people who are going to redeem the slave. It says, if he sells himself as a slave to a non-Jew, one of his brothers shall redeem him. Okay, an uncle, a first cousin. A relative himself. His father. His father. Well, you say a brother. You say an uncle. Yeah, specifically, it just says a relative male. You start with a brother. It's fine. A brother should liberate another brother. You go to an uncle. Okay, next after the brother, you have the father's brother, the mother's brother. You have a first cousin, that's the uncle's child. And you have another relative, and then you have finally himself. What about his father? What do we, his uncle is there. If his uncle is there, his father could be there. Son, how do you know his father's not there? Why shouldn't his father be there? If his uncle is there, his uncle is his father's brother. There's no way a father. It's very strange. Now you can ask another question. What about his son? What about his brother? Sometimes the father is poor. So that one can answer, and that is that usually in life, the father supports the child, the child doesn't support the father. And therefore, it's unnatural that the child should be able to redeem the father. Even in situations where it does happen, the child grows up and makes a lot of mo- makes some money and the father is dire poor, right? 
But the question is, where was the child before? Apparently, he didn't believe in supporting his father. So if a child sells you once, he'll sell you a second time. But the question is not on the child. The question is on the father. What happened to the father? So you say, where was the father before? That's true. That's true. But you'll ask, where was the father before? I could say, sometimes a father doesn't support children, but when the child becomes enslaved, father usually wakes up. But regardless, however we want to explain the psychology of this particular family, you mention his brother, you mention his uncle, you mention his cousin, you mention our relative, you mention himself. What happened with the father? The uncle comes before father. There's no mention as though there's no father here. It's an interesting question, no? Yes? Very good. She's asking even a better question. Once you already specify relative, don't specify anybody. Once you say the cloud, just say any of his relatives redeems it. What do you have to start? The answer to that is kal hakarev karev kaidem, which means the closer relative is obligated to redeem first. If there's an uncle and there's a first cousin and they both have the means to redeem him, who's obligated to do it? The uncle. If there's a brother and there's an uncle, who's obligated? The brother. And then after, if none of them can do it, so you go to the next relative. In other words, whoever is the closest in line of blood relation is obligated, which only exasperates and makes the question stronger. The closest to a child is a father. Now you might ask, why is there no mention of a sister or of a mother? Okay, the answer, of course, is right. That they didn't have usually money of their own. As we know, the Gemara, the Chazal tell us that a woman has a right to make a condition in marriage. The condition is either. If she doesn't work, she doesn't work. If she goes to work... So the condition is either she tells her husband, you're responsible for all my needs, but you can also take the money that comes in through work. Or she could tell her husband, the money that I make through my work belongs exclusively to me, but you're not responsible to pay for my own expenses. Not talking about the house expenses, the children expenses, my own expenses, you're not responsible for. That's the condition according to Chazal already 2,000 years ago. Every woman could make that Maisa Yadeha should go for herself with the condition that her husband also doesn't have to pay for her expenses of food or clothing and so forth. Um, I guess it depends how much she makes, right? If she makes a lot, so I guess the condition is a worthwhile one. If not so much, maybe it's not such a good condition. It depends on what type of husband. It depends how many credit cards there are. I was at a dinner, I was at a dinner, so somebody said, don't get offended, it's just a joke, that uh, he lost, uh, him. Uh, someone stole his credit card. For nine months he didn't have it, and one day the police stop him, and they, by the light, they say, is this you? We found you have your credit card, it was stolen nine months ago. He says, it's me. They said, why didn't you call us? Why didn't you want to start an investigation nine months he said, I'll be very honest. I used to get the bills of this thief that he would use my credit card. It was much cheaper than if my wife would have had. So I decided. As I said, it's just a joke. So uh, 
It is what it is. The guy said it publicly at the dinner. I hope his Shalom Bayas is fine now. What did you say? Oh, okay. What did you say? Those who made the most funny jokes publicly, they had the most Shalom Bayas. They talk about such All right. That's good. Now. So I understand why it doesn't say a sister and a wife. But the question is, why does it not say a father? That's the big question. Father sold? No. Father didn't sell him. He sold himself. So the answer to this is... That obviously there's no father here. There's a brother. There's an uncle. There's a cousin. But what does that mean? Why Why not? It's not talking about here an orphan. It's talking about any person. Taylor doesn't talk about, let's say a person does have a father and they sell themselves to a non-Jew. It's still the same law. So it's not that the Taylor says it's talking about a particular case. It's talking about any single case. A person can have a father. But somehow the father is not mentioned. But not having a father could mean not necessarily biologically, physically. It can also mean not having a father on a different level. A person can have physically a father, but they still may not have a father on another level, as we will see. But something here is glaringly telling us that the father is not in the picture. The explanation to this will be understood by asking one more question, and that is why is he mentioned the last? First brother, then uncle, then cousin, then relative, then he himself. If a person himself has the money to redeem himself, he has to do it first. He can't go to his brother and say, hey, bail me out. Why don't you bail yourself out? If the person doesn't have, we go to the brother. But if the person has, he can't go to the brother. You go to the brother when he doesn't have. We explain that the order of relatives is the people who are obligated first to redeem. The first obligation, the first person to redeem him is he himself, not other people. If you have the means, you've got to do it yourself. There was one Sayyid, a wealthy man, and he had a very, very poor brother. They wanted, the Kehillah used to ask him for a contribution for the community. And he used to say, I can't give you a contribution. They would say, why? He says, you know, I have in another city, I have a brother who has 11 kids, and he doesn't own a ruble to his name. You know, in another city, I have a sister who has 16 kids and doesn't have a penny to her name. You know, in another city, I have a sick mother. You know, in another city, I have another brother who was thrown out of his house. So with all these poor siblings, you want me to feed your community? This went on for 20 years. So once the killer decided to write a letter to all of his siblings and find out, Taka, you know, uh, what he does for them. 
So they write a letter, they get back, and the response, our brother, he never gave us a single penny. We ask him every year, he doesn't give us, they come running back to him and say, what do you lie for us to toss all these years? You say you can't help the Kehillah because you have a poor brother, this, poor sister, here, another poor brother, a sick mother. You didn't give them a ruble, you didn't give them a penny. He says, you don't understand what I was telling you. I wasn't telling you that I can't give you money because I gave them the money. I was just telling you I have a poor brother in this city. So I was making a kalvothaymer. Madaf, my own brother, I don't give a cent to, and he has 11 kids. You want me to help support the community? That's what I was trying to explain to you. My policy is I don't share anything, even with a brother, even with a sister, even with a mother. You want I should help strangers? I don't do that. So you have different attitudes. But the Nakud is a brother should help a brother, but if you have yourself, and then you say, help me, that, uh, that's, that's not a say that. There was a borough park, there was a snorer, a man who collected money, he was standing on the streets. And he was standing, so he stopped the heat. That was my, he says, give me money. The man says, I don't have. So the snorer says, so go get a job. <laughs> but the point is, the point is, huh? What's the difference? It's an idea. It represents a mindset. It represents a mindset. If it's true or not true. It could have happened. But the bottom line, it probably happened. The bottom line is, but he himself. So if he himself has the money, he should come first. No, he comes last. The answer to all of this is that every halacha in Taita, just as it's understood physically, concretely, it also has a concept, an idea, that applies to different situations as well. In other words, whenever we discuss a mitzvah, you can look at it just physically, practically, or if you strip it from its physical incarnation and you get to the germ of the idea, in other words, you divest it from its external cloaks and you get to the nucleus of the idea, then it can be applied to many different situations. And that's true about every single mitzvah, every single Allah. You can study it in its most concrete way, the way it's discussed and manifested in a practical scene. Or you can get to the, to the idea behind it, and then it can be applied to different situations as well. So although the Torah expresses it in a particular way, if you divest it from its external manifestation, then you can see how it applies in other situations as well. And that's really the idea that every halacha in Torah doesn't begin only on the physical realm, but it also begins on a spiritual realm, and then it evolves until it assumes this particular manifestation. This, this halacha here, this mitzvah here, although it's physically describing a tangible case where a person doesn't have money, and they sell themselves as a slave to a non-Jew, and now they have to be redeemed so they can be set free, but conceptually it represents a certain pattern in life, and that pattern can exist even today when people don't sell themselves as slaves, and even not in their existential, and even without this scenario. But the concept exists, and that is that there's a situation in a person's life where he sells himself. And sells, you could sell certain things, but then there's sometimes you sell your very self. And this is what we call today, in English we call it addiction. Every person has habits, different habits. Some of our habits are good habits, and some of our habits are not the best habits. But we're not necessarily addicts. But then there's a level where you sell yourself, you become a slave, and that's called addiction. Just as a slave, 
I'm a slave to this person or to this situation, and I can't get out under ordinary circumstances. The same is true, the concept of addiction is a person sells themselves to something. And it usually doesn't happen in one day. It happens, over gradu- it happens gradually over a period of time, although it can happen very swiftly before the person usually realizes. But they become an addict. Now, I don't know how well you're familiar with the disease of addiction. If you're not, you're very lucky. And if you are, so then you know what I'm referring to. The disease of addiction, for people who don't know it and don't have it, they will not know how bad it is. Because they just think it's a bad habit. You know, I I drink coffee in the morning. Okay, so, and and how fast do you get a headache? This person likes likes this, likes that. It's not an addiction. Addiction doesn't mean you like something. An addiction is actually an illness. It's a disease. It may have not started that way, but it ends up as an illness and a disease. And that's why a a lot of times... When somebody who's an addict comes to somebody for consultation, if you're not an expert on addiction, you should not give them advice. Because your advice is just like if you're not a heart specialist, you shouldn't give advice to somebody who comes with a heart problem. It's an important idea, because sometimes I see some of my colleagues who are fine people, and somebody comes to them with a problem about addiction or a similar problem, but they don't know about it enough, but they're giving them advice. Learn this, do this. It's all very nice things that tell them to do. They don't understand the depth of the illness, the depth of the disease. And it's true in all areas of life. Sometimes a couple will have shalom bias problems. Sometimes the shalom bias problems are manageable issues. They're issues that a lot of people have, and, and a sensible, logical, nice person can solve them. But sometimes it's a situation that's very, very serious, very, very difficult. There are other issues involved, especially with different experiences. Some of them had abuse or whatever in the past, child abuse and so forth. And then you need a real expert to, to, to guide such, and maneuver such a situation. And not everybody who's a nice person or even a fine person can always give advice. It's an important idea because people have to have the humility to know what I'm good at what I'm not good at, what I'm an expert at, what I'm not an expert at. And if I'm not an expert at it, I have to send you to the right expert. Addiction, similarly, is a disease, and it's a very, very serious disease. And it can express itself in many ways. There's, of course, addiction to alcohol, there's addiction to gambling, there's addiction to nicotine, and then there's more serious addictions. I mean, these are all serious addictions. But there's addictions, of course, to drugs, especially light drugs or heavy drugs, and then there's, of course, an addiction to intimacy, to promiscuity, immoral relationships, women and so forth. And both of men and women, addictions don't, uh, addictions uh, exist in both genders and with equal ferociousness. And addictions express themselves in very different ways. And sometimes in marriages, there's a spouse who's an addict and uh, it, can, it, it, it can erode and destroy the entire family, the entire marriage. When somebody is an addict, they are sold. That's the issue. They're not choosing anymore. They're sold to something. In other words, someone else owes them. It's not that I'm choosing to go work for you today and then tomorrow and tomorrow. It's rather you own me. The addiction owns them. They're not making a choice anymore. A young man came to see me from a different neighborhood, from a different community. And he's in recovery now. He was very into it. He had addiction to gambling and alcohol and drugs. Triple hitter. 
So, uh, so, so he came to see me. So we were schmoozing, and uh, he was already in recovery, but he just wanted advice about something. So he was telling me his story, and he said that he comes from a very good family and a Hashem family, and married with a bunch of kids, a lot, a lot of kids. And uh, he was on the path, but he didn't realize. And once he was in Atlantic City or in Las Vegas, and they were gambling and drinking and taking drugs, and somebody turned to him and said, you know that today is Yom Kippur. And he looked at the clock, it was the time of Nehla. And he said that it took him to realize where he is in life, that Yom Kippur during the time of Nehla, he was gambling away his life and his money and his last resources in a casino in Atlantic City in the Jersey or in Nevada and Las Vegas. And he said from there started his recovery from that awareness. But already two years before, his wife threw him out of the house. I mean, he couldn't be there. It was just destructive force. But here you have a situation. The person completely lost control, completely sold. And that's the disease that the person doesn't own it anymore. It's not that they make a choice every morning. They're not acting by choice anymore. They're acting by a diseased impulse that completely owns them and dominates them. The worst is that sometimes it's cloaked in holiness. In other words, there was a person I know who would have every week a Shabbos meal. And at the Shabbos meal, there was naturally Lachayim. And he would drink every Friday night. And it took him probably 12 years to realize he was an addict to alcohol. It had nothing to do with Shabbos. It had nothing to do with Sabreng. It had nothing to do with the people. It had to do with his own addiction. And it happened to work with Shabbos and our Shabbaton and Mashka and Lechayim. And it was all we work. But in a way, that's worse because it takes years to realize it doesn't do with holiness. It has to do simply with a disease. And that's why the Allah is that an addict on Pesach is now allowed to drink four cups of wine. They have to drink four cups of grape juice. They're not allowed to drink because it's simply an union of, of, of pikuach nefesh, which is deicha kol kula, because what it leads to are things that are very horrible. And this is not theories, it's facts that happen, unfortunately, every day. So how does a person realize that It happens in two ways. Either they hit rock bottom, they hit rock bottom, which is very, very sad, they can't go further, and then they realize, or they, or they have... Uh, or, or they, they listen to their soul a little bit, and there's a voice, usually, the earlier that tells them. If he doesn't drink all year long, it's just... No, if you don't drink all year and you only drink four cups of wine, you're not an addict. It's fine. If you don't drink all year and you only drink Purim, you're also not an addict. We're talking about a person that drinks on Shabbos and drinks on Monday and drinks on Tuesday and sometimes drinks on Wednesday and Sunday too. Not everybody who says L'chaim is an addict. We're talking about a particular situation. And this is the situation. Now, sometimes you sell yourself to another Jew. What does that represent psychologically when we divest it from the particular circumstances? A person may sell themselves, but it's a person who is still in their culture, their lifestyle. But here is they sell themselves to a non-Jew. In other words, they sell themselves completely to an alien life that has no relationship with Jewishness. 
comes to Taylor and says it's a mitzvah to redeem them. But who could redeem them? So we say the father. So the Taylor doesn't mention a father here. And the reason the Taylor doesn't mention a father here is to indicate something very profound. And that is if they would have a father, they wouldn't reach this situation. The reason they reached this position is they didn't have a father. What does it mean they didn't have a father? It doesn't mean biologically, physically. It means something more, something of an identity. And that is what a father is supposed to, what a father is supposed to give a child in a person's life or represent in a person's life. And that is that the role of a father is not just to pay bills even though that's a very big, big role, and it shouldn't be underestimated, because as some of you know or don't know, it's very hard to pay bills. But in addition to that, as difficult as it is, a father has the power to give a certain form of confidence and strength to each one of the children. And this is the meaning it's brought that before Manashtana, on Pesach, he said, you pour the second cup, the Kan HaBen Shoyal, Manishtana. You pour the second cup and here the child asks Manishtana. So it's brought in Svarim that Shoyal means two things. Shoyal means asks and Shoyal also means borrows. Here a child borrows. What's child borrow? You say Manishtana, you start off with Tatech of Adifreg and So first of all it means you have somebody that you could say Tate to. And second of all it means you have a Tate to whom you can ask all the questions that you have. Which, what does that represent? It means that you have a father that have the freedom to be able to ask any question. And when you say ask any question, it doesn't mean only why we eat matzah and not chametz. It's representative of the concept that you have a father in whose presence you can ask every single question you have in the world. It's that freedom, it's the confidence, it's the empowerment that any question which represents any dilemma, any struggle, any challenge represented by the word question, you can ask freely, and tonight he's going to try to answer you. He usually won't answer you, but he'll speak for a few hours, and you'll be asleep at some point, which is the system of Pesach and the system of uh, education. Just say, and start talking. After a few hours, he'll be asleep, or whatever, he'll forget the question. But that's a separate Indian. The point is that he should be able to ask every single question. It's known that there's a minig, a chabad, and other communities that everybody says tata, even if their father is not there, and even if their father passed away. It's brought in the Nuan Hagim that even even somebody who doesn't have a father, they say tata, but the question is why? They can ask the four questions, but not from their father. They ask from your wife, ask your wife, ask your guest, ask your children. But it says, even a person doesn't have a father, says, So if the father is there, it makes sense, father. The father having a say there elsewhere, it's also a little strange, but you hope next year you'll be there. But the father is in Eulam Ha'emes, what do you say, Tata? So once, you're Aleph Nisan, Aleph Abreng, in Tavshin Gimel, 1983, the Rebbe spoke about this, and he said that you saw by the Rabbeim, even after their fathers passed away, they still had to say the set Which meant that when they said it, they were addressing their father. 
they were actually addressing their fathers. And it's a fact, and Bashas the Rebbe said that, so he actually started to cry. When he said this, the Fabrengen. So she's Machavin, don't worry. What, what, was the, what was the Indian here? What is the Indian? The Indian is that apparently, the Rebbe explained that Pesach, by the Seder, the father was there. And because the father was there, even though one cannot see physically with the eyes, so therefore when you say Tata, it's real. Father, I'm going to ask you the four questions because they're talking to their father, but the father is not there. On this we say, it says in Swaran, the child can borrow. When you borrow something, it means you don't have it, but for this time you can have it. For this time of Manishtana, the child gets his father or her father. And therefore they can say, Tata. And the Rebbe added then, and he said that usually throughout the year they would never do this, because to take a neshama out of Olam Ha'emes is not something you want to do. You don't want to disturb a neshama taken out of a, There's the whole story with Shmuel and Shoal, you know. Huh? You usually don't want to do that. You don't want to, a neshama in Olam Ha'emes, you don't want to take it away. But Pesach, by the Seder, is a time where they do take the neshama away from where it is, to come to the Seder. Spread out. Huh? I can't answer that question. It's probably the same like Eliyahu Anavi with Abris. Uh, he has, what's it called? What, what are those planes called? Uh, a Concorde. Or a hot air balloon. A hot air balloon. I can't answer the question, but whatever it is. So the child can borrow what they need. What, what do they have to borrow? They have to borrow the ability to be able to say tata. What's that ability? It's that ability which would allow them not to be sold. Because all of addiction comes from a certain inferiority complex. Not all, but much of addiction comes from the fact that the person doesn't lack inner strength, inner power, that inner conviction, inner confidence. The understanding of their greatness, of their value, of their depth, of their majesty. Like the Maisa Hayadua, that there was once a camel, a baby camel, in Brangzu. You know Brangzu? Yeah. Turned to its mother and says, Ma, I have a question. I have a question. Why are our feet so flat? So she said, because we travel in the desert, Sahara Desert, other deserts, thousands of miles, and we need to be able to step, have good, so our feet are flat. So the baby camel said, Ma, why are our eyes so narrow? She said, because in the desert, you travel thousands of miles, the wind blows and all the sand would go into your eyes, so we have this mechanism, the eyes are narrow. Ma, why do we have this big hump on our back? So Mommy Camel says, when you travel thousands of miles in the desert, there's no water. So we have to store on our backs enormous amounts of water to sustain us. So that's why we have this big hump on the back, so we can put all these gallons of water. So the Baby Camel says, Ma, we have flat feet to be able to travel thousands of miles in the desert. And large humps to be able to carry thousands of gallons of water, hundreds of gallons of water in the desert. And eyes shaped a certain way to be able to be protected from all the sand blowing in the desert. So what in the world are we doing in a cage in Bronxu? <laughs> Explain to me. 
But this question of the baby camel is a very profound question in life. Only when a person understands who they are and what they're capable of becoming can they ask themselves, what am I doing in a cage in Brang Zoo as a slave and as an addict where my soul and my mind and my brain and my instincts are sold? What am I doing? But for that, they have to have a larger perspective of who they are. And that's why the Hedlikid of Aaron Carlina once said that the greatest tragedy is when the prince forgets that he's a prince or the princess forgets she's a princess, and they look themselves at themselves as a peasant. Because from there is the Haskalos Hayyiridis, the beginning of the descent, when a person doesn't have a larger vision of themselves, a deeper vision of themselves, of who they are and what they're capable of becoming, so then they could be locked up in a cage in the Brang Zoo, and they're satisfied. Or even if they're not satisfied, they resign to it. So the Torah says here, that's why a person needs a father. So now you want the father to redeem if there would have been a father on some level. So then the person would have never sold himself this way. You know why? Because if he would have had a father, the father who lives up to his calling imbues his children with the conviction that they are great human beings who can stand up to any challenge they encounter on the dramatic journey we call life and live their life to the fullest. The father represents that individual who empowers his children to know the depth of their dignity, the infinite power of their souls and the ability that they have to forge their destiny successfully. But there's something even deeper. The fact that the Torah does not mention father here represents not only the fact that this human being may be lacking biologically a father, emotionally a father, the father who can give, the person who can give this to his children. But there is also something deeper that's missing. And that is this person who sold himself to the slavery of addiction is completely unaware of the profound relationship he has with Avinu Shabashamayim, with his Father in Heaven. We say every morning, right before Shema, the last bracha before Shema, Ahavas Oilam Ahavtonu Hashem Alekeinu, it's based on a posik in Yirmiya, Ahavas Oilam Ahavtich, I have loved you with an eternal love. There are two versions, some say Ahavarabbe, some Ahavarabbe Ahavtonu, some say Ahavas Oilam Ahavtonu. And then we finish the Bracha Baruch HaTashem, HaBoycher Ba'ama Yisrael Ba'ava. God chooses His nation Israel with love, and we declare Shema Yisrael Hashem Alekeinu Hashem Echad. What does this really mean, Ahavas Oilam Ahavtonu Hashem Alekeinu? The Zohar says in Parshas Shmois, the second volume of Zohar Dav Hay, quotes Rabbi Yehuda. Fascinating statement. Rabbi Yehuda says, if a person would know how much Hashem loves him or her, that person would chase Hashem like a lioness, like a lioness chasing after her prey. You ever saw a live or you saw a video of a lioness chasing? So he says, if a person would know how much Hashem loves him or her, they would run after Hashem with more intensity, with more swiftness, with more alacrity, with more passion than the lion is chasing her prey in order to feed her cubs, to feed her children. But this person who sold themselves to addiction is completely unaware that they have a father. 
is completely unaware how deep the relationship with their father is. They're completely unaware that their father loves them with every fiber of his being and that the love is eternal and it's absolute and it's unequivocal and it's unconditional because it comes from the deepest place of his being. And that love represents not only I love you and I have compassion for you as the, as the bracha continues, but I love you and I believe in you and I empower you and I know what there is in you and how much there is in you to love. If the addict would realize how deep his relationship with his father in heaven is, how much his father in heaven cherishes him and loves him and trusts him, and wants him to maximize his potential, he would never, ever, fall prey to live a life of delusions, of lies, of deception, because that's what a life of addiction is. Or to quote, to, to use the terminology of Kabbalah and Chassidus, Abba, Father, always represents Chachma. Throughout Zoya, throughout the writings of Kabbalah, throughout the writings of Chassidus, there's Abba and Ima, there's the father and the mother, Abba is Chachma, and Ima is Bina. The father represents Chachma, and the Bina, mother represents Bina. Chachma is the first uh, uh, flow of consciousness, the seminal thought, Chachma, wisdom. That's the father. It's like the father who provides the seed, and then the mother develops the seed, and ultimately brings out the child. As the Tanya explains, there is the seed of conception, and then there is the Bina, which develops the idea, and then there are the emotions, which are like the children, that are given birth from the mother. What this Jew is missing is, he is not aware of the Father in him. He is not aware of the Chachma in his own soul. The Tanya explains at length in chapter, chapter 18 and 19, that there is the Chachma Shebenefesh. Chachma Shebenefesh is the quintessence of the soul. It's that deepest state of consciousness where the Jew is absolutely one with the Ein Soif, absolutely one with the infinite higher consciousness with God. And there's nothing ever that can detach one from another. Like a father and a child, there's nothing you can do not to be my child. There's nothing I can do that makes you not my father. And if a Jew would realize that part in himself, he would never live a life that alienates him from his own truest self, from his own truest depth, and from his, from his powerful relationship with Hashem. Would he realize the Father in him? Would he realize the Chach Meshav his truest self? He would never live such a dysfunctional life that alienates him from truth, from reality, from Hashem, from God. He's unaware of it. Because he's unaware of it. Therefore, he can sell himself as a slave. That's why. That's why the father is admitted here. But now what happens? Now a brother has to kick him. And if not a brother, an uncle. And if not an uncle, a cousin. And if not a cousin, another relative. But that's all nice, because they will give the money and redeem the person. So what does that mean practically? They may pay for recovery, they may get the person out, but the Torah finishes that he himself has to redeem himself. Ultimately, what everybody else can do is only contribute and help and start the process, but ultimately the person has to find a means to redeem himself, and that's why that comes last. 
because all the help in the world will never be able to replace what the person will do for themselves. So you can help a person from today till tomorrow, the next month, the next year. If they're not ready to be redeemed from slavery, all the help will go straight down the drain. Not only that, they could be futile and even destructive because it gave them an illusion that people will help them and they don't have to do anything. So that's why after everything the Torah says, what's the tachlis? The tachlis is they have to redeem themselves. And that doesn't come first. Even though the person has the means, halachically he has to redeem himself. So practically speaking, if he would have had the means, he probably wouldn't have sold himself. But here the point is even deeper, that after everybody can help the person, the objective is, he siga that the person himself or herself must find the kaychas and the resources within themselves to set themselves free. And if that will not happen, if it won't lead to that stage, then as much as a sarusa de la'ela will be, as much as arousal from above, and inspiration and help from others, physically, spiritually, mentally, psychologically, you're not going to get anywhere. If you don't have within yourself the power to liberate yourself, and that no one can ever do for you. Not a father, and not a mother, and not a brother, and not a sister, and not an uncle, and not a cousin. That's only you. And that's the pshat we say in the Chadoidi, Isnari may offer kumi. So Hisnari, it's a Pasuk Yishaya Nabi, says Hisnari may offer, shake yourself off from the from the dust. Kumi, stand up. We say in the Chadoidi Friday night. So it says in Zayar, Kahad the Tarnagelta, it's like a chicken. A chicken sometimes goes into mud, you ever see? Yeah. And then the chicken comes up and starts uh, flapping its feathers. And within a few seconds, the pebbles and the rocks and the dirt and the leaves and the mud is gone. The, the bird, the bird sometimes, right, that lifts itself up from the swamp and it starts flapping its wings and its whole body swiftly and within a second it's gone. So it's brought the muscle that if somebody would see this chicken or this bird come out of the mud or out of the earth, with been submerged in dirt and in rocks and pebbles. And you say, yeah, I want to clean the bird. So you'll bring shmatas, and you'll bring soap, and you'll bring shampoo, and you'll bring chemicals, and you'll start scrubbing the chicken for a week straight, and it'll still be mud. The bird, the chicken, gives one flap with its wings. But it's a good, a good flap, a power flap, and it's all gone. So we say, You can have people watching you off a whole day, a whole night. But ultimately, only the chicken themselves, you flap your wings. That's how you get clean. What does this mean in a person's life? Only you can ultimately let your wings go free. You can flap your wings. Someone else can clean it and help see and give perspective. And it's very, very important because the other person can't do it themselves. They don't even have a father. They don't have themselves. But ultimately, only you can, only you can flap. The truth that's being conveyed here is that when somebody is submerged in a difficult situation or in a filthy situation and so forth, as much as anybody will try to schlep them out, ultimately the only person who can flap the wings and get the dirt off is the bird itself or the person itself. And that's why the end, after all the relatives, it says, it all has to lead for you yourself to have the courage to be able to set yourself free. As the Torah concludes, the reason is, because the Jews are my servants. Study Kaidah. 
In other words, before you sold yourself to addiction, before that you were already a slave of God. So really you can't sell yourself, because if you already belong to somebody, you can't belong to somebody else. So that's the very powerful thing a person has to remember. Even if they look at themselves, they already sold themselves to addiction. But before that, they're already God's slaves. And because of that, they really can't sell themselves to anybody. It's a superficial sale. Because really, their essence is already sold. So you may make a second contract. People do. They sell their house to one person and to another person. But at some point, it's going to be destroyed because superficially, you can do it on contract. But essentially, it belongs to somebody. You belong to somebody already. And since you belong to somebody already, therefore, for eternity, you can't be sold. Because essentially, your soul belongs to the divine and not to addiction. I want to tell you a mice. I heard this mice from a Yidre, Blabel Tversky. Blabel Tversky tells me a mice. He heard this from his father, Zechernel of Rocha, a grandson of, uh, a great-grandson of Reb Mordechai, the Heleke Reb Mordechai Dov of Horen Stipel, the Peleyoyitz, who was a grandson of Reb Yaakov Yisrael Cherkasser, who was a brother-in-law of the Tzemach Tzedek. He was a son of the Heleke Chernobyl, Reb Matla Chernobyl, and he was a son-in-law of the Mittler Reb, a grandson of the Alter Rebbe. And this is a mice about his Bob, who's a great, great granddaughter of the Tzemach Tzedek, of the Mittler Rebbe, of the Alter Rebbe. And... Um, his father knew this woman. She was already an older woman. And she was uh, forgetful. She was senile. She had dementia or Alzheimer's. She was, she was senile. And she once expressed herself with these words. I'm going to say it in Yiddish. She said, and I'll translate. She said, Ich weiß nicht, wo ich bin. Ich weiß nicht, wer ich bin. I don't know who I am. I don't know where I am. But I know whose I am. I know who I belong to. I know where I come from. Sometimes we lose our course in life. We forget who we are. And we certainly don't know where we are. We're lost. We're completely lost. What the Pasuk is saying is, Shtari Kaidim. Shtari Kaidim. Kilib na Yisrael avadim avadayim. By Matan Torah, every Jew became the Eved Hashem, the servant of God for eternity. And nobody and anything can deprive him from that identity. You have to remember whose you are. Even if following that, the person violates every mitzvah in the world. To the point where Rahman al-Islan, he becomes a complete slave. To his worst habits, to his worst instincts. One has to remember that all the negativity and all the dysfunction and all the addiction and all of the disease and all of the lies and deception and damage that this person did to themselves or to others, it's ultimately something additional, superimposed on his or her essential essence. Because your essence, the fact that you're an Eved Hashem, the fact that you belong to Hashem, that could never be changed, it can never be altered, and therefore, as the Pasuk says, Gu'ula Ti'eloi, which means not only they should redeem him, they will redeem him. He will experience redemption. You know why he will experience redemption? 
because at his core, he or she is a free human being. Have a wonderful day. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.